Hi. Welcome back. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I was wondering if you might not come back at all. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because seven days, it's nice to get away. But I'm I'm starting to wonder if maybe for next summer if I should rethink, rethink my my booking strategy. Because I like to take a week in June, a week in July, and a week in August. But two seven weeks. days never feels like quite enough. Two weeks in a row is key. You're just starting to relax. And then you're already starting to think about going back to work. Yeah. You need like three or four days just to decompress and to leave all your garbage behind and filter it all out. And then by the time you're just starting to feel relaxed... Oh man, I got to go to work on Monday. Do I have this? Do I have that? Oh, I'm going to be dealing with that meeting or that. Yeah. (laughs) Two weeks in a row is awesome. I did my first two week holiday, like in about three. No, I was longer than I think it was like seven years last year. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was really good. By the time the first Monday rolled around, I was really in a nice zone. And then when you got to the next Monday and realized you didn't have to go to back to work for another week. Yes, the resistance, <laughs> my friend. Plus, too, I may, and I think maybe the reason why is last year I used to fill in for Jeff Braun in the morning, right? Is the morning anchor. So he's gone the next two weeks. Yeah, he's not here for two weeks, so usually that would have been my job. But since they've retooled what I do around here as now the host of a show, they've got other people like Keith and Keith doing a bang-up job this morning. But uh, so... I always saw those weeks as kind of a vacation because I'd be out of here at noon, mm-hmm. straight to the golf course. Right. <laughs> so, so I got extra time. And you're going to have to rethink this whole strategy, Brett McGarry. Yeah. Anyways, good to have you. It's good to have you back. Great to work with Keith and Tristan Field Jones last week. We had a very good time. And thanks for everybody who tuned into our Facebook Live production yesterday or yesterday, Friday at one o'clock when we played that Bean Boozled game. We had over 2,000, almost 2,700 people have watched that video so far. Uh, this disgusting game from Jelly Belly where you get two identical jelly beans or a pile of jelly beans and it's about a 50-50 chance whether you can get something disgusting like sour milk or something delicious like a coconut flavored jelly belly and uh lots of people gross (laughs) gross you picked the sour milk over (laughs) coconut wouldn't you it's like that scene from the simpsons where uh homer simpson is in new york and he comes up to that vendor who says Homer's trying to get something to drink. He's selling the Kav Kalash. Kav Kalash, come get your Kav Kalash. And he says, what do you have to drink? Mountain Dew or crab juice? (laughs) (laughs) I'll take the crab Crab juice. juice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind Mountain Dew. You like Mountain Dew? Uh, You know what? Well, I wish I did because I was looking at our vending machine and we have like five different rows of Mountain Dew. Yeah, it's like that energy style one too, right? That's right. They have the Voltage, I think, or Kickstart or I don't know. Yeah, we don't need to be bouncing off the walls in here. Hey, at 1.30, we're going to have a conversation. You may have seen this in the Winnipeg Free Press. Dan Lett did an amazing job. Fantastic article, not only full of nostalgia, but information as it pertains to the Bay Store downtown. The footprint isn't, you know, maybe it shouldn't surprise anybody to learn that there's as much square footage of space in that Bay building as there is in the Richardson building at Portage and Maine. It's gigantic, the amount of floor area that it covers. 
And so we're going to talk with one of the architects, architectural student, actually, Aaron Pollock. He was involved in compiling some ideas and the conversation in Dan's article about alternate uses for that gigantic building at the intersection of Portage Avenue and Memorial Boulevard. That's at 1.30. We'd like to get your feedback on ideas on how we could reuse that building because its days are numbered as a retail outlet. Yeah, that makes me kind of sad, but when you look at this article and you realize you get that perspective on the fact that you could fit was it the centennial concert hall could go in there and something else on I think each if floor you, yeah i think if you can buy yes portage place it's it's like uh twice as big as portage place the, the graphic is startling right yeah so because i remember going there as a kid We'd go shopping downtown, and and it, even when I worked downtown, I would often go shopping at the Bay. And it's just a neat, it's just such a neat old building, and you walk around it, and I just look at the old sort of architecture, but I had never quite thought about how big it is. And the fact that it is bigger than the Richardson building, never did I even think about that, because the Richardson re- building reaches so far Further towards the sky, but in term, if you take the buildings and lie them down side by side, the bay takes up more space. That's incredible. Yeah, it is really quite fascinating. So we'll talk about that, and we'll also have a conversation about you two. Last week, we were giving away Nickelback tickets, and of course, they are as divisive a musical act as there is in Canada. Well, I think you two has become the same way. I think either you really love you two, or you've got some sort of disdain for you two. And I think a lot of that has to do with Bono, his political activism. Some people call it his preachiness. We'll talk to a gentleman who managed uh, several of their tours and has the inside scoop on you two. We'll do that at 2.30 this afternoon. And we will talk about the cycling debate. I, th- I find it funny that there's this gigantic divide. And it's not just, you know, like Saskatchewan Rough Rider and Winnipeg Blue Bomber fans divide. It's almost as though Cyclists are from somewhere else. Like your friends, your neighbors, your family members are cyclists. Just because you don't cycle, hundreds and hundreds of people use it as their primary transportation. Whether they should in the winter or not, I'm totally on the fence with this. But a lot of the commentary I hear about cycling just indicates to me, A, that we need to be investing way more money than we do in terms of cycling infrastructure for separated and dedicated uh, cycling lanes so that we can get these two groups that seem to hate one another as far away from each other as possible. And the conversation about being insured, I don't really have a problem with that, with cyclists being insured and having to take some sort of test. I don't know how you would legislate that. There are so many crappy drivers on the road that shouldn't have a driver's license. I don't know how we would ever keep track of the cyclists, but I agree that something needs to be done. I think that's a great idea because, yes, in one hand, when you are behind the wheel of a motor vehicle, you are driving 3,000 pounds-ish, you know, give or take, depending on the, the vehicle, of course. Maybe if you're driving a truck, it's a lot more. But you're driving a vehicle that is essentially very easily turned into a weapon of destruction. So you have, it's a responsibility when you're behind that wheel and you should be tested and you should pay for the privilege. I have no problem with that. So I think it's a good idea that cyclists also maybe be insured or be tested or something, get some sort of formal training to share the road. You need to learn how to share the road because I think a lot of people 
simply would not know how to do it. It's one of the reasons why I don't. I I think I know how to share it, but I don't want to because I found the experience terrifying. When I finally got on my bike and rode down a major thoroughfare, I said, that's that's it. I think I'm done. If I'm officially too old, because you can get away with being on the sidewalk when you're a kid, right? Yes. But once I started to get into my teenage years, that's where I kind of realized I think I need to be on the road. And I didn't like it. Not at all. And I'm fine with not riding my bike on the road because I... I think it's, one, scary, and I think people who are brave enough to ride their bikes, good for you. I'm way too chicken to do that. But two, I just, I, and this kind of goes to what Al was talking about, bikes in the winter. Man, that's a pain, because if you're on, a, say, a narrow road, I think of a Ness Avenue, for example, where it's already fairly tight. If you put snow in there then you and there's a cyclist, that lane is gone. Like yes. You cannot get around that person who is riding their bike. No, 100% agree with you. So we'll talk with Jamie Hill. And Jamie is our, our bike riding expert. He rides all over the place. I think he will tell us that he rides in the winter as well. And this comes out of a story from Brittany Greenslade. Uh, I think it's alarming to realize how few people face criminal charges, not when they hit a cyclist, but when they kill a cyclist. Typically, it turns into a fine situation. And 180 Manitobans that are riding bicycles collide with or are hit by vehicles every single year. That's a huge number. And how do we get that down? And how do we find that accountability? And what's the solution? So we'll talk to Jamie about that. In the meantime, after we have a look at your forecast, we want to have a quick chat about homework. Is it good for kids? The research says maybe not. We'll have, a, we'll have that conversation after we take a look at the weather. We have some severe thunderstorm watches in effect. We'll tell you all about that coming right up. 119 on this Monday afternoon. Brett, Brett McGarry back in the saddle with myself, Greg Mackling. Uh, when are you here till? Are you here for two weeks, three weeks before you get another week off? I am off the 10th to the 14th of July. Also, I'll enjoy it for, I think it's three weeks straight here. Yeah, it's going to be a busy two weeks actually for me because Jeff Braun is away, so the couch potatoes is a, it's an all me. It's a singular for two weeks. It's a, <laughs> and that's a, that's a show that even though it's only technically thirty four minutes of content, it it's a takes lot of work. it's a lot of work, and we put a lot of work into that show for the weekend. So that's uh, it's going to be a, a bit of a, a marathon for me for the next two weeks. So. I'm going by memory here. Saturday at one, Sunday Saturday one, yep. Sunday at four. Yep. Wow, not bad, eh? I think yeah, I, still, I keep track of you, eh? I should know that it's Sunday. I think it's Sunday at four, yeah. Yeah. You can also get it on podcast and because we come in and we do the show at one o'clock and then it gets replayed on Sunday. Okay, so. very good. So we want to talk a little bit about homework. Of course, as happens with us when we start meandering through conversation, we've used up a good chunk of the time that we wanted to take to talk about this. But as the school year winds up and you are and I are going to a kindergarten graduation on Friday just to get the reaction of the kids and to have some discussions with the parents. Because as I understand it, a lot of the school divisions are moving away from any graduation that doesn't involve the word grade 12, the two words grade 12. And I've always wondered if this is a false sense of accomplishment or an engineered sense of accomplishment that we're giving our kids with these nursery school, kindergarten, grade six, grade nine grads. We'll talk about that more extensively later on the week. But right now, kids are talking about homework and wondering if their teachers give a lot of homework. They're asking their friends in the grade above them whether or not they're going to get a lot of homework. And of course, the kids in the grade behind them are saying, does your teacher give a lot of homework? And parents are kind of saying, you know what? Homework is overrated. And a lot of the research tends to back that up. 
I find that interesting that homework is bad. Now, is it because, is it for all students? Or are we talking about for kids? Mostly early years, early years for sure, and right into junior high school. In fact, a lot of the research suggests that until high school, the benefits are limited. And really the biggest benefit for having homework in high school is to prepare kids when they're very independent into college and university. So it's sort of to get, give them a work ethic, as it were, to say, okay, you know, life isn't just for a few hours a day. It's all day, and you got to be prepared. That's fair. I do remember the early days of junior high, I guess, and that's where we really started to get lots and lots of homework. And uh, there were times where it was overwhelming. There were times where I think I actually – because I pushed myself really hard in school, and there were times where I would just kind of break down a little bit uh, because I would – I believe it or not, I was actually an academic overachiever. I I've heard that about you. And uh, but then then I turned eighteen, and things changed. But in those years, it was a little too much. I felt I put so much pressure on myself. And as I look back upon it, I I wonder what did I really accomplish out of that? Because I don't think I actually learned anything. Now this is I'm not saying this is how it is for all students, but I know in my experience. I didn't really learn anything. I was just so focused on, okay, got to get this, ta- got to get this task done, or I got to study for this test. So I memorized whatever I needed to know, or just did the assignment. And then once it was done, it just kind of okay. Now I just got to move on to what's next. So you became more a task manager than you did a student yeah. of learning of learning things, right? Like a task master. Yeah. I know lots of people in the world that are really good at that stuff of just getting stuff done. And then you ask them, well, you know, what did you do? I don't know. I just, I don't know what I did. It was just, <laughs> it needed to be done. And here it is. It's complete. Well, it still happens. I'll go home and say, and someone will say, what's the, from, uh, after reading the news on the weekend, what's the forecast for tomorrow? <laughs> uh, that is a great example. I read, only read it. 13 times? I have no idea. Here, let me just pull up my Weather Network app on my phone. Right, right, because it is. It's it's simply a task. On Monday, the weather bed mm-hmm. played, and I was doing something else, and right away my immediate reaction was to turn on the microphone. Oh. Well, it was actually Clay Young's turn to read the weather. It was at like 1.33, but... The audio cue told me that it was my turn to read the weather, and I was on autopilot... And that just happens, right? You just, there are certain things that cue you to this, cue you to that. I can't tell you about Jillian Harris or who she is or anything like that. And I won't even remember that I read that tag come three o'clock. It's just on my list of things to do, right? (laughs) Well, so what do you think? Uh, You've got twin boys who are, uh, how long before they go into junior high? They are a couple of years away. They go to grade six next year. And... I'm glad that my kids have had homework ever since kindergarten, actually. Their kindergarten teacher started with a little bit of homework. And there were parents in our group that complained about it. I'm not trying to, I won't out anybody by name, but I just say, you know, it's just about getting them in the habit Mm -hmm. of having to dedicate a little bit of time to get in the habit, in particular of reading, because reading might be something that you're pretty good at, but if you don't do it on a regular basis and it doesn't become a regular part of your life, when you get to college, when you get to university, you'll 
realize really quick, holy crow, I should be way better at reading quicker uh, comprehension and deciphering the important parts of an article, important parts of a book or a chapter. And that's something that I'm, I'm thankful for. But there is a tipping point for me where it isn't beneficial. It, it becomes a distraction. It becomes something that the kids, I think, um, dread, not because they don't want to do it, but because they have other things in their life. And I think that that's what we're finding. Well, there's also the fact that the kids now are, or families are pressured to get the kids involved in more things, Extra more curricular, extracurricular activities. 100%. And how do you justify that when you've got an hour or two of homework every night? But I'll bounce that argument right back at a lot of people. The most organized people I know, some of the most successful people I know in life were collegiate athletes. And they were top-notch athletes in high school and when they went on to university and not only juggled school and their athletic career, but now there's travel involved. Mm. And these people were amazing at doing that. Some of the most successful people following their athletic and their academic career were collegiate athletes. So uh, I'm not standing up one way or the other, but I definitely believe there is a a tipping point, and we might be reaching that in in a lot of cases. Well, maybe we'll revisit this chat at some point down the road this week because we didn't get a, a chance to to put the question to you on homework, and we are going to switch gears. Up next, we're going to talk about what we sort of teed up to open the show. What should we, what could we do with the Bay downtown? Mackling and McGarry, Global News at one thirty. up next. one thirty four. Monday afternoon. Might be the uh, start of your work week for most of us. Might be the end of it for others. So we like to give that weekly shout out to those that work the odd hours, work shift work, frontline workers, retail workers, first responders, etc., who do the tough jobs, work the odd hours so that we can do the things we do in our lives. We appreciate everything you do. And Brett McGarry is back in the saddle. I'm Greg Mackling, and we'll be here straight through until 4 o'clock this afternoon. Julie Buckingham and Richard Cluche take over at that time. And tonight, the coaches show, Mike O'Shea and Bob Irving, the Blue Bombers, making their cuts, setting their roster more or less on Saturday night. The coach will be here at 7 till 8, along with Bob Irving. Hashtag Hey Bob, if you want to send Bob Irving a question or two. On the Twitter machine, I think Instagram and Facebook, if I'm not mistaken. I'm just more active on on the Twitter machine. And you're an, you're an Instagrammer, aren't you, Brett? I do enjoy the Instagram. Yes, it's uh, well, that's how I found out about the the Winnipeg Thunder stuff. So we're going to revisit that at three o'clock and talk. Great to shirt, him. yeah, man. I, <laughs> I'm so excited to wear this shirt and the hat when I pick that up on Saturday. So we'll talk to Chris Watchorn from Okanor. He'll join us after the 3 o'clock news to give us an update on how well sales went over the weekend. It was busy when I got there. so Nostalgia plays well in Winnipeg. Sometimes it's a case of you don't know what you've got until it's gone. The Eaton's building, uh, that was a stumbling block in getting the way and got in the way of some progress in terms of building uh, now Bell MTS Place. I have to think about it every single time I think it and say it out loud. Bell MTS Place. Yes, that sounds accurate. Uh, Question being asked now about the bay, the future of the bay. There's no comparison between these the way those two buildings, Eaton's I'm talking about, and the Bay. Eaton's was in fact designed as so, somewhat of a temporary structure. It was timber framed, etc. It was a prototype store and 
not necessarily designed to stand for 500 years. Uh, there is a suggestion in Dan Lett's article in the Winnipeg Free Press, a thousand years from now, the only building standing in Winnipeg may in fact be the Hudson Bay store because of the way it was built. And joining us to discuss this, Aaron Pollock. He is a design intern at Number 10 Architectural Group, and he was tasked with uh, coming up with some alternate uses for that incredible building at the intersection of Portage and Memorial Boulevard. Aaron, thanks for taking some time this afternoon. No, thanks for having me. Talk a little bit about that building first and foremost. Have you got an emotional connection to it? And just just tell us some of the history of that incredible uh, structure. I think me and like uh, everyone else, or like everyone else in the city, they have some sort of tie to the building, whether it be you know hearing your grandparents going there every weekend or something like that. But I think the building is like it's an extremely robust structure in the city. It's got a lot of latent potential, and I think it's just a kind of an idea that it will spark something larger for it that needs to happen. What are the challenges in? getting this building or turning this building into something that can be completely used as opposed to right now where I think five of its seven floors, including the basement, are empty. I think uh, Dan's article really covered the the biggest issue is just the sheer size of these floor areas. Um, The whole building itself, as you guys were mentioning before, is uh, quite large. It's over 650,000 square feet. And uh, we're losing a lot of the natural light the closer you get to the center of the building. So I think one of the biggest issues is how do you bring in natural light into the center, down through the floors, down into the basement level? How do you open up this big kind of monstrosity? Now, that's not only just an architectural thing, Aaron. That's a requirement in terms of modern-day building codes, fair to say? Uh, Yeah, you're kind of creating spaces that are providing ample natural daylight so if you're if you're leaving the center to be just in this dark uh dark corridor it's it's not an a great ideal place for people to work why is the natural light so importantly why is that even important in a department store in a department store, I would say it's not as important. Um, you're, you have tons of fluorescent lighting that kind of provide your, your focused lighting. But if you're to redesign the space, um, I mean, no one wants to work in a dungeon. You want to kind of create a, a light atmosphere for people to work in. So I think that would be the key in that situation. So what are some of the ideas? What are some of the ways that you could carve up this space and and make it usable and maybe not all 650,000 square feet usable. How, how many square feet might we have left over once a design like the one that you envision, uh, if that were to be selected and that would be constructed and used down the road? I think you're looking at cutting out about 5, 10 to 15% of the total area just to bring light into the space. Um, in order to kind of give enough natural light to the space, yeah, you would, you would require quite a bit uh, of the structure to be removed. And so the way that the building is built is a uh, cast in place concrete and the floor slabs can essentially be cut away from the beams and columns, really opening up um, the, that interior through various levels. So it's not a matter of uh, if you pull on this in particular pillar, it's all going to come down. It, it's incredibly strong in terms of its engineering and, and the way it was constructed. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an incredibly robust structure. And 
because of that, it lends itself to a lot of options. Uh, like in my iteration, I'm looking at kind of creating asymmetrical openings that get away from the rigidity of the structure and kind of create a new um, comparison between the two. So what would have to happen to make your vision come to light in terms of cutting away part of the building to bring in more natural light? What would they have to do from, an, uh, I guess, just a construction standpoint? Well, it's uh, it's kind of simple. Like you're just kind of wanting to understand the exact structure of it, um, doing assessments and things like that. And then there's various ways that you can cut through existing floor slabs. Um, on this magnitude, it's it would require a little bit more uh, research and you know seeing if there's additional rigidity required. But essentially, the way that the building was constructed it would lend itself to kind of these openings to be provided between the beams and columns. So the iteration that I'm looking at is to keep the beams and columns, but just removing the floor slabs to let light in. And for those that didn't read the piece, can you give us some examples of buildings, uh, you know, similar to this in other communities that have been repurposed successfully? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Dudley really touched on a couple of them in the article. Uh, and... Some of them actually were former Hudson's Bay buildings. Um, there's one in Vancouver that's now condo buildings called the Hudson, and they successfully uh, provided light wells down to the lower floors. Um, some other examples include like Queen's Quay Terminal in Toronto. Uh, again, that's a large storage warehouse building, and they again have removed the floor plates to kind of allow this opening of the interior space. I'm looking at a picture of Butler Square in Minneapolis, and a lot of people in Winnipeg may have been there. And yeah, yep. they've they've opened up the heart of this building that was basically a gigantic. Well, it was a warehouse, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, successfully, yeah, they've removed some of the columns as well. A little bit more engineering on that respect, but yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's opportunity there to open up that interior, and you can see that there's tons of natural light entering the space. It's not just the perimeter of the building. Aaron Pollock is a design intern, architecture student with Number 10 Architectural Group, and we are talking about what should we, what could we do with the Bay Building downtown. And when you, I mean, there's a picture in this Free Press article that shows the building being constructed, and it's just concrete pillar after concrete pillar. When you look at that, that that's what they did, that's what they did all those years ago, does that surprise you at all that they went to the rather... I would. I don't know if extravagant is the word, but does it surprise you that they went to such great lengths to make the building so sturdy? Absolutely. This was kind of a modern technique at the time, doing the cast-in-place concrete, uh, it, especially for Winnipeg. And it's, this allowed for the speed of the project to be done at a much faster rate. So it's something that uh, is kind of timeless. It's still somewhat used today. And so I think the fact that they've used this kind of construction back then and built at such a rigid form kind of lends itself to new opportunities today. And to imagine it's made 100% with Manitoba materials. They were going to use terracotta, I believe, as the exterior yeah. uh, surface, but they used Tyndall stone in, instead. And this building was engineered to be able to add several floors on top of it. And so when I was reading this article, I found it fascinating that a building of 650,000 square feet uh, that isn't being used and would be shrunk somewhat in terms of the footprint and this current building, one of the keys potentially to it being successfully used down the road would be to, in fact, add more floors potentially to it? Is, is that one of the ideas that, that might 
make the building more useful, Aaron? I think so. Uh, like I said, the structure is inherently strong and there's a built-in flexibility to it. So if we were to go down another 20 years from now and we somehow needed more space, uh, the structure would allow that kind of expansion to be done on top of it. So you could see up to another four stories being added. Why do we need to keep this building? Why not just tear it down if if and when the, the store is no longer used by Hudson's Bay Company. Why not just bring it down? I mean, that is a fair question. Um, it, it poses, obviously, some challenging questions on how to occupy it. We're talking about how to introduce light wells and things like that. But I think the real issue and the reason that I kind of researched it for my uh, architectural thesis is because the amount of latent energy this building has it's, again, built so long ago of a modern technique. I think it would be uh, a shame to tear it down, not only for its um, kind of a history with the city, but just from a building standpoint, there's so much energy built into this thing. How can that be reused in a really feasible and economically promising way? And I'm not certainly not advocating. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's destruction. <laughs> I, too, think it would be sad. But I am curious, would it be cheaper to bring it down and just build anew? Uh, that I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think it it would lend itself to possibly a new design for sure, but I don't know if the cost effectiveness would be really there. It was built in 1925 at a cost of $5 million, which according to Dan Lett's article in the Free Press was astronomical at the time, about $72 million in 2017 uh, money. Uh, we're hearing Lowe's building a, a big warehouse for about $34 million. So to me, it sounds like a bargain in today's dollars and all the beauty that's intertwined, the history and everything that goes along with this building. I think it would be devastating to see it come down. I was okay with the Eaton's building going down, uh, not only because of what they put there in its place, but because a little bit of the history as to how it was built and, and, and purposed and et cetera. But this building is iconic, and I think it would be uh, horrible to see it go. Aaron, thank you for this. Is there anything you wanted to get to that we didn't ask you about? No, yeah, we pretty much covered everything that uh, that's important for the building. Appreciate your time today, Aaron. Okay, thank you. Aaron Pollock is a design intern with Number 10 Architectural Group talking about the Bay Building downtown. What should we do? What could we do? And uh, Aaron has submitted uh, an interesting sort of proposal as to ways that they could introduce more natural light and convert it into a whole bunch of mixed use. I mean, the, the, the sheer size of this building is... Again, I, I, when I first read it, it I, my brain actually had a hard time computing the data that it was bringing in. It's stunning. It's half the size of Polo Park in terms of its floor area. It's bigger in terms of floor area than the Richardson building. So that should tell you really all you need to know in terms of comparisons. We are getting text messages, 204-780-6868. We'd love some phone calls. What would you like to see done to the Bay Building uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big of a disaster would it be for the Bay Building to go away altogether as the Eaton's Building did on Portage Avenue? 204-780-6868. We'd love your opinion and your own voice here on Mackling and McGarry. What should we do with the Hudson Bay Store downtown Winnipeg, intersection of Portage and Memorial? To me, outside of the legislative building, I think it's the most beautiful building in Winnipeg. 
It really is. It's one of those things where when you just take a moment to stop and, and walk around it, it's it's quite marvelous. I like, uh, you, we used to catch buses by there all the time. And it ended up being one of those things I kind of took for granted about Winnipeg. And every so often I would stop and, and look, because I do like to stop and smell the flowers, whether it's the, the figurative flowers, like looking at the, the cool things like the, this building, or whether it's stopping and smelling actual flowers. I do like to just take those moments and go, hey, that's neat. I actually don't ever mind being stopped at a red light eastbound on Portage and Memorial because it gives me a chance to look at that building. Jill's been waiting patiently at 204-780-6868. Jill, what's your take? What should we do with the Bay Building? Well, you know, given the heritage of the Bay, I'd love to see it stay there, and I'd love to see it turned into an indoor water park. The building would just be phenomenal for it. It's dead center of the city, easy access for everybody, and of course, you'd have to have a malt stop in the basement. (laughs) Well, I I would like to see the resurrection of the malt stop. That's for certain. The water park. So, Gilles, are you the uh, kind of proponent of any time there is a vacant building in Winnipeg that it should be turned into a water park? No, not necessarily, but I've always thought that about the bay. Given all the floors that are available there, the room, you could run water slides all over in that building, and not to mention a host of other entertainment facilities in there at the same time. It would just be great, and it's all connected, you know, downtown at the Portage Place, you know, to MTS Center, Bell MTS Center, sorry. And, you know, I just think it would revitalize the downtown really well. Jill, I'm a huge proponent of the water park. I don't know if I see it in that building, but I could be convinced if the right proposal came forward. Thanks for that, Jill. Not a problem. Appreciate it, Jill. I mean, it's a big, it's a big building. If they were going to put it in any existing building, that could be one where they took made it. You remember Atlantis, the indoor water park, Atlantis in Winnipeg? No, I can't remember where it was, but it was. <laughs> this it, was a real thing. Yeah, it was. It they only had two slides, and they were both tubes. They were the first ones where I, they were. It's a completely encased tube because it's in. I guess because it's indoors. So you was uh, you would go up to the I, I can't remember what floor, but they were right beside each other, and you could race down because I think they are both essentially the same slide. They would just one would turn left and the other would turn right. This wasn't attached to a hotel or anything. It's like a freestanding yeah, thing. I can't remember what it was attached to. I only went when I was in school age, and then it disappeared. So if anybody remembers Atlantis, the water park Atlantis. Just shoot me an email, brett at cjob.com. Tim, you're going to get the last word on this. They should bulldoze Portage Place Mall before they even think about tearing down a piece of history and architecture that is iconic across Canada. I couldn't agree with that statement more, Tim. Yeah, and you made the comment as well, Greg, that you were not sorry to see the Eaton's building go Versus the bay, I think you're right. I the, the old Eaton's building was starting to get a little kind of dilapidated, but even now there's no sign of that on the Hudson's Bay building, and I fully agree that if there were to be some sort of apocalypse and every building was, was wiped out, the bay would still find a way to <laughs> remain. So it would be sad to see it go. Although I do miss at, at Eaton's. Yeah. I used, when I was a kid, I would go see Santa Claus there. Oh, 
because I was told the real the real Santa was at the Eaton's and all the other ones just kind of worked for him. And of course, they had the uh, what was it called the Nutcracker, the, all the different yeah. scenes set up. Uh, oh man, it was a little it was a little like fairy tale. We uh, grew up in a magical time. <laughs> Coming up to two o'clock on six eighty CJOB. I'm Greg. He's Brett. Joined in studio for the next half hour, Jamie Hilland. He is active and safe routes to school program coordinator for the Green Action Center. Jamie has essentially become our go-to guy on cycling issues. And Jamie, thanks for coming into the studio today. I'm assuming you did so on two wheels? Absolutely. People yeah. powered? People powered. The only the only risk, as I was telling you, was dodging those earthworms. Well, oh, not even earthworms, <laughs> sorry. Those, those caterpillars hanging yeah, everywhere. Yeah, the canker worms. I, I think I picked like three off me already. So. Yeah, keep them to yourself there, partner. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> funny, driving up uh, Grosvenor yesterday, I could. I think I hit at least three of them in yeah. my car because they're hanging down so low, and yeah. they're getting really. It's they're now like they look like twigs now. Yeah, Those canker worms. They're brown and they're they're gross. It's a deck of giant us. webs. Uh, another another great marketing tool for the city of Winnipeg. Come see our caterpillars. caterpillars. Yeah, <laughs> global news as you've been hearing uh, in our news. Global news investigation shows that cycling fatalities often end with a fine and no jail time for drivers. This is from Brittany Greenslade. Life is cheap. Cycling advocates calling for harsher penalties for drivers who kill cyclists. Manitoba drivers who hit and kill a cyclist often end up simply paying a fine. A Global News investigation found multiple cases where the driver was never criminally charged and said the person was charged under the Highway Traffic Act and the offense then resulted in a few thousand dollar fine. Every year, 180 Manitobans are struck by motor vehicles and we've brought Jamie in to advance the conversation to talk about how do we get that number down as more people use bicycles as a means of exercise yeah. and ultimately a means of transportation. Well, I think you, you and I talked a bit about it before is that uh, the best thing you can do is separate cars from bikes. Protected bike lanes, research shows reduce injuries by 91%. So if we really are concentrated on reducing the road deaths for our vulnerable, most vulnerable road users, which are pedestrians and cyclists, let's separate them. Get them off the road, right? Let's put more protective bike lanes in as many places as we can along the popular routes. Start with that. That's why I'd love to see a downtown bike grid. Separate them from the vehicles. As far as the prosecution side, absolutely, I'd love to see proper prosecution and something that... You know, you and I uh, talked about a bit beforehand. It's just more people are embracing active transportation. It's a, it's a great way to stay in shape. It's a good way to get around. I, I, like my route to my workplace downtown is 12 minutes every day, no matter the traffic. Summer, rain, wind, or shine, right? It's predictable for me. And I get, I don't have, I have a you know, busy life right now. I don't have time to go to the gym all the time, but I get at least, you know, 30, 35 minutes of workout a day just by biking back and forth. I'm trying to think of the, the amount, the number of streets in Winnipeg that already have some sort of an actual protective, uh, one of them is Sherbrooke. Yep. Okay. And so when I talk protected too, I think we need to put a little context here. The Winnipeg version of protected and, <laughs> and what you guys are talking about is actually called buffered is, is the way it is. So Sherbrooke is a buffered bike lane so that you have parked cars acting as the buffer, right? And then we have what's called bollards uh, in between them. So that is separated from traffic. If you ever went to a place like uh, Vancouver or Calgary or now Edmonton, you would actually see proper concrete barriers that separate uh, cyclists from motorists right, from the vehicles. Those are fully protected bike lanes. We have yet to see Winnipeg have a fully protected bike lanes. Assiniboine Avenue is pretty close, but it's also a pretty permeable layer. But we have yet to see here uh, anything like that. So we've got a ways to go, but we're on the right track. What, what's been the hesitation to this point? Is it simply cost? <laughs> 
I don't or think it's is, cost there, is there an attitude that, you know, we're a cold weather city and, and people, yeah. there's not enough people do this to justify the investment. Yeah. My favorite presentation from the Calgary folks all the time is Calgary, the city that has eight months of winter. Right. And we always hear that. Well, Winnipeg, we've got, you know, we've got winter pretty much from September to June, you know, here it's, it's like, and, and we don't. A, we don't, and B, is that winter cycling is more than possible here. I, I see hundreds of people uh, regularly every season that I meet that are biking in winter. If you take proper care of your pass, I go to Winter Cycling Congress every year. You want to talk about northern cities in Scandinavia, Minneapolis, uh, Edmonton is doing it now. Calgary maintained their bike grid all winter. And guess what they saw? Hundreds of cyclists coming downtown every year. That's part of it. Bike lanes are cheap, though. That's the other part that people sort of don't recognize. Calgary came in under budget for their downtown bike grid. And the more, and you and I were talking about this as well, the more people you can get cycling, the more you're going to save on healthcare costs, right? So it behooves the government. If you look at all the, uh, at the return on investment on any bike lane installation, it takes 3,600 bikes to equal the impact of one vehicle. If I'm not riding my bike, guess what I'm going to be? I'm going to be a car in front of you. I'm going to be trashing your road. I'm going to be costing you more in road infrastructure costs. I'm going to be costing you more in healthcare costs, adding to the congestion, it's your choice. Would you rather have more people being healthy, getting clean air, right, and less air pollution in your city, or would you rather have more people sitting in cars? So you mentioned downtown. Yep. If we were to look at adding a, a bike grid in downtown Winnipeg, yep. what would like? Would we have to take like get rid of curb lanes, or would we just remove lanes of traffic? Like, what would we have to do? You know, if you look at the Calgary and Edmonton model is the one that I would probably suggest and what they did is adjustable bike lanes. So it's, it's really, you could send the three of us out <laughs> for a weekend with a bunch of pylons, some concrete, you know, guys that know what they're doing, some concrete barriers, slap them down. If it's a, it's a problem somewhere, you move them. It's a, it's, that's why it's an adjustable pilot. At Calgary did it in 2015, a year later. It was a really narrow vote. It was an 8-7 vote, very contentious in city council. A year later, that vote was 11-4. to 4. How many kilometers in Calgary? It's, it's into the teens, isn't it? The, I think it's just under, actually just under 10, under I want to say. I think it's like 8, is eight to 10. Edmonton's bigger? Edmonton's is 7, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, 7.6 is the number I think and I saw. And what kind of dollars are we talking about here? So Edmonton's was around $7 million, but they, uh, $5 million of, of that was uh, in uh, signal upgrades. For theirs, uh, and Calgary's was budgeted at seven, but came in at four point five. So, it's pretty cheap, in all honesty. And they've seen uh, multiple uh, fold increase uh, in the number of people that are biking downtown. I was in Calgary a couple weeks ago for a conference, and in that their bike paths down there were ram full of people with beautiful facilities. I mean, yeah, they've got more money than us, <laughs> you know, with the oil town. But still, there was the uptake was amazing. But they also have a superior, in a lot of people's opinion, transportation, public transportation system in yep. terms of the C train and buses and yep. and transit ways that they're building. So not only is the city that's got Superior yeah, public transit, transit yep. investing in cycling infrastructure. Uh, they're they're doing it with with a lot of gusto. They're they're and and there was the yeah. same hesitation as we have here now oh. a year ago in Calgary. It was it was more of a trollic, I would say, than what, really? the, the conversation that we have here. Mm. Yeah, you had people out there protesting about it. I mean, and Edmonton is the same. Edmonton is a car city. Right, like, let's be honest about that. Have you guys been to Edmonton much? It's been major freeways. Once. Yeah, it's it's a, a cars everywhere. It's a very spread out city. Uh, even probably a bigger footprint than I would argue Winnipeg has because I oh, think yes. they're now a bigger city. Mm -hmm. But they went ahead and installed a full downtown bike grid in less than a year. And you know, we're waiting on one lane on Gary Street till when? Twenty nineteen? <laughs> is that right? Right. <laughs> so I can't, you know what? Some of it I can't even talk about because it's so embarrassing. Yeah. I just wish the city at some point would just admit that this isn't a priority 
And, and then we could then we could rally yeah. around this idea. Just stop paying at lip service. I, I mean, why do we always have to study everything to death here? Yeah. Every major city in North America has said this is a priority. Yeah. And we're, as usual, on so many things, we're late to the party. And we're, and we're looking for this made-in-Manitoba you know, solution. Yeah. And really? Uh, to be fair, honestly, the adoption of our, our bike pedestrian strategy in 2015 was a huge step. And I'm not, I don't mean to uh, be overly critical of our city administration, and, and, uh, and I'm being truthful. You're looking at my face right now, see if I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> being mm-hmm. honest here. I am being honest is that they, they are taking the right steps. What we're debating is the pace of that that change, right? Okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, like they have committed to it. I think that they recognize uh, the value in trying to get people moving and alternative transportation. We can't keep on. How much is Keniston going to cost us? Right to knock down all those houses. Have you ever considered that cost? Well, it's going to be a four to five hundred million dollar project. Right to do what? Are we really going to have a? a and I bet you, within a year, the traffic volumes will, and the traffic wait times will be comparable. It's called induced demand. Every single study yeah. would show you that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the city of Los Angeles has more lanes it. of freeway than any yep. other city in the world. Guess what city has the worst traffic? Yeah. And guess what happens when they add lanes on freeways to fix congestion? Guess what happens? Yeah, it just attracts more vehicles. Exactly. As people see an open lane, they start driving more. Mm-hmm. So that's going to happen to Kenniston. How much is the Waverly underpass going to cost us? $140 million is yeah. the budget right now. Dale says we're over budget on road cleaning during the winter. Yeah. And they, Dale, I, why do we? Ha- why is it they, them, yeah. and uh, it's uh, it, it's us, it's your neighbors, it's your friends, it's your family yeah. who are demanding this, not not people that live in Brandon that come here to ride their bike every day. <laughs> lifelong Winnipegger. But yep. here's what Dale says: over budget on road cleaning during the winter, and yeah. they want us to pay to clean a bike lane now. How about set up a bike marathon, etc. Activities to raise their own money. Okay. Do, so do, do you own a house in our community? I own two properties, actually. In the okay, city of Winnipeg, so you, so. How, many, how, how many thousands of dollars do you pay in city Close, property tax? About $6,000 a year. Yeah, so yeah. You, you're, you're asking for just a little bit of that to go to active transportation. Yeah, and you and I talked about previously before, right? The annual road budget for the province of Manitoba was about a billion dollars, right? Is what we're talking about. And people always, motorists and people who drive lots always argue, gas taxes pay for that. How much were gas taxes revenues approximately? And they vary a little bit, but it's around the $200 million to $250 million range in gas taxes. If they were allocated solely to road infrastructure, which they are not, that's 20 to 25% of road infrastructure. Where's my other? Where's If I'm a property tax owner, where does my, why am I covering subsidizing the cost for people who choose to drive everybody and trash the roads, right? You are impacting my air quality. You're impacting how much I'm going to have to pay to maintain those roads all the time. You're adding to congestion in the city and wait times. It's, and it's not an us and them. I, and I agree with you on that. We're going to continue our chat with Jamie Hilland. He is the Active and Safe Routes to School program uh, manager at the Green Action Center. And we're talking about cycling. Our conversation was spurred by this global news investigation, which has found that cycling fatalities often end with a fine rather than jail time for drivers in situations where the drivers are found to be at fault. Your forecast is coming up next. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling and Jamie Hilland, who is <coughs> active in Safe Routes to School program manager at the Green Action Center. He's sort of the cycling guy here on Mackling and <laughs> yeah. McGarry. We always like to turn to him when we are talking about cycling. And today, of course, the big global news investigation has found that cycling fatalities often end with a fine rather than jail time for drivers who are found to be at fault in those situations. And we have a text message here from 
A guy who has identified himself as Rick, who says, This bike guy is out to lunch and not Love in it. touch with Winnipeg infrastructure. We have roads like the moon surface, and yeah. we should pay more so bikes can ignore rules of roads and drive in winter yet. Air quality? Some of us just don't need clothes on our backs in our places of work. End of text. <laughs> so I'll try and catch all those wonderful points. Um, why are the roads in bad shape? Because we have a ton of vehicles on the roads. So your solution is to dissuade people from getting off those roads and putting more cars on roads? That doesn't seem to make economic sense to me. It takes 3,600 bikes to equal the impact of one car on a road. So uh, the, the math isn't really there. I think if anything, I'd, if, I, if I'm worried about the condition of our roads, I'd want less vehicles on the roads. More, alternate, me. more alternate transportation. Alternate forms more, of transportation. Altogether, right? Yep. Including transit. Yep. Now, what about the second part here and this idea of... Cyclists disobeying the rules mm-hmm. of the road. This, yeah, is, I love this it. becomes so, a huge point of contention, yeah. right? So, uh, absolutely. And I, I said to you guys off air, uh, there's, there's poor cyclists and there's, there's crappy drivers and crappy cyclists, the same thing. When they've done studies on it, uh, you know, how many people are blowing through stop signs or how many people are disobeying the rules of the road, it's about the same. Actually, it's a little bit worse for, for vehicles. The University of Denver just did this last year. It's about 8 7 or 8% that will typically blow through a stop sign. Uh, we, as our program, we take steps. We, we teach kids how to properly bike on roads. We teach them the rules of the road. We teach them that stop signs are to be stopped at, to signal your turns, lane positioning, all that corrective stuff. I get as frustrated and I call out fellow cyclists when I'm biking for blowing through red lights. It drives me insane. But you have to remember too that for people that get upset about cyclists blowing through red lights, who's at risk there when they go through a red light? The cyclist. Are you sitting in a steel cage with airbags or the cyclist? So I don't know how it, it, it equates. It's not an equal structure. I mean, people on bikes are far more vulnerable. So if they're choosing to do that, they're not endangering you. The reason why people get mad about that, though, is yeah. because it's it's typically the cyclists who will argue. And I don't, I, I don't, I, yeah, yeah. I realize by saying the cyclists yeah, yeah, that, yeah, I, yeah. that I'm Again, putting it into that sometimes. Yes. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's often cyclists who will will. What we'll say, well, we say one thing and do another. We want, you know, yeah. we you, we want you to share the road with us. You yeah. you have to share the road yeah. with us. Yeah, but then the the rules don't apply. Yeah, well, I think the generalization is there that the rules don't apply. But I, what, I mean, what can I tell you? I I call people out. We lead a a bike education program that taught fifteen hundred kids. And good for you, right? by the way. Uh, you know, so we're taking concrete steps. When I bike, sometimes I drive, sometimes I bike. When I bike, darn right that I'm stopping and following the rules of the road because I don't want to get killed. I got three kids, right? I want to be around for it. Do we need to do more education on it? Absolutely. I work downtown. The amount of people biking on sidewalks downtown drives me nuts. What well, about, a lot of people see get, that as a solution, allowing people to cycle on sidewalks. Tell so us why that's a bad idea. Give me a 30-second Google search on how safe sidewalk cycling is. It's five times the number of collisions and deaths. Because sidewalks aren't set up. Sidewalks are set up for people to walk about nine kilometers an hour. Bikes typically can go 15 to 30 kilometers an hour. So when I'm in my car and I'm coming out of my back lane, the last thing I'm going to be looking for flying across the sidewalk is a bike. Oh, I've done my I've done my look riskier. to the left. Yes. There's nobody coming. I've done my look to the right. Yeah. I creep up and then boom, all of a sudden there's yeah. a cyclist yeah. because he's covered two blocks in the matter right. of about uh, 30 seconds. Yeah. I was driving last year and a guy ran into me on his bike coming off the sidewalk. I, I did not take the opportunity to lecture him on the research behind sidewalk riding, but I picked him up, <laughs> dusted him off, and, you know, made sure he was okay. But it's, it, it is. It's far riskier, and that's why we're teaching kids, you know, from grades four to eight. Sidewalk riding is far more dangerous. 
Like it, it, it just, it is statistically. So I agree. I get as frustrated with people with cyclists that choose not to obey their, their, their laws, but that is no reason to start d- denying them uh, proper safe cycling lanes. Because if you're anti-cycling lanes, and we talked about this, you're pro-injuries, right? It's 91% the injury rate reduction along a stretch of road if you put in a protected bike lane. And if you don't like cyclists sharing the road with you, the first thing, the next thing you should want is for cyclists to be as far away from you as possible. I'd love to not have to ride with traffic. Should cyclists be insured or should they have mandatory testing? And I realize that gets tricky because when you, especially when you talk about kids. Yeah. Right. It's a tough one. And we, we talked about that a bit, too, because I'm not I'm not a strong opinion either way. I see merit in, ter- in terms of licensing and accountability. Right. So that you, the police would have the authority to sort of pull people over or red light cameras, et cetera, et cetera. But when they have done licensing in the past, the cost of maintaining that system outweigh uh, the cost that you can you can get from the users. Right. And again, the other part that really concerns me is that you're putting another barrier to getting people onto bikes. Right. If I know that I have to pay a $10 or $20 licensing fee and go for a road test every year, I'm probably going to be like if I'm a casual cyclist. Nah, why would I bother? That's not worth it for it. And do we really want to be dissuading people from getting exercise? Do we really want to be putting more cars on the road every day so we're adding to traffic jams? Do we really want to be trashing our roads more? I don't know. Tyler says if they don't pay auto pack, they shouldn't be on the road. I, I love that one. Well, MPI is one of our, our best partners. Uh, they recognize that there's risk to, to people on, on the roads. Uh, I, I, what MPI do I not pay as a cyclist? I have three vehicles. So I pay a lot into MPI. So I'm wondering where, if there's some magical fund where I can be a cyclist and somehow not have to pay for uh, MPI, I would sign me up, please. But that's not a reality in my world. Yeah. Jamie, we, we could talk to you for another half hour, but unfortunately we are out of time. So we'll just you have bet. to have you back again somewhere <laughs> down good, the road. Guys. One of our favorite guests, Jamie Hilland, is the Active and Safe Routes to School Program Manager with the Green Action Center, armed with opinion and knowledge to back that opinion. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thanks, guys. After the news, we're talking you too. Two thirty-five. I'm Greg. He's Brett. The door opens. <laughs> hey, boss. <laughs> What's going on? Are we in trouble? Is the show being canceled right now as we speak? No. Oh, you're good. You're good. No, we're good till at least four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you typically don't walk in when we're on the air, so now I'm a little bit nervous. Anyway, I uh, hope you're having a fine afternoon. Uh, lots of great text messages about our conversation with Jamie Hill and keep those coming. If you want to feedback via email, if that's easier for you and you've got lots to say, GMAC at CJOB.com or Brett at CJOB.com. This conversation isn't going anywhere. I suspect until we have tens, if not hundreds of miles of separated bike and motorist infrastructure in our community, Brett. Yeah, bikes and motorists, it always ends up being... And I didn't even try to frame it. It just ends up being an us-versus-them situation. I referred to the cyclists and immediately realized what I had just done. It just sort of inevitably ends up being uh, where you've got vehicles on one side, cyclists on the other, and there is this... I know that there is a stereotype sometimes that cyclists and motorists hate each other. That's not always the case, but I think that's largely the case. And also a misunderstanding that cyclists aren't very often motorists and vice versa. Exactly. And I like having Jamie on because when he says it takes 3,600 bikes to have the same impact on the roads as one vehicle, that's kind of a startling figure. 
So I, I do agree that we need to find a way to make a bike grid happen. And I think the sooner we do that, the better. It's better for motorists, it's better for the cyclists, and it sounds like it'll be better for the roads, which is better on our pockets. So I don't see the, the negative. Well, quite frankly, a lot of the, re- the reasons that people don't like having cyclists on the roads are the justification for that separated infrastructure uh, in the first place. So uh, we'll, we'll press pause on that discussion. We're going to talk about... We, were ta- we had tickets to Nickelback last week while you were away, Brett. Mm-hmm. And they create a real divide in terms of music lovers in this country. Yep. Because you definitely have a take on whether you like them or not. And at the very same time, there are a lot of people that are innocuous about the whole thing because oh, nobody seems to like Nickelback, yet they sell and will sell about 14,000 tickets to their concert coming up in September. The, nobody likes Nickelback, yet they sell out concerts and sell millions of records. It, it, it just doesn't add up. I remember. I was listening to uh, actually our pals on Power 97, Phil, Joe, and Randy. And Phil Aubrey says the same thing. Nickelback coming to Winnipeg, everybody rips on them, but they're going to sell out. <laughs> So they're one of those bands that everybody loves to hate, but really maybe not hate so much. I wonder if you too falls under that same category. This gentleman that joins us now is not an expert on Nickelback, but he sure is an insider to you too. Tony Michaelitis joins us now. TonyMichaelitis.com. Tony is a music industry professional and former music promoter that got you to their very first radio and TV appearances outside their native Ireland and worked with them for the very beginning or from the very beginning right up to the Joshua Tree from past interviews, music tours, house visits and albums. The real story is all in his latest book. Tony, thanks for taking time with us this afternoon and sitting through our preamble here. <laughs> My pleasure, guys. Nice to meet you. So tell us a little bit. Uh, it, does you 2 have that same sort of divisive sort of, uh, st- shall I say, the same sort of divisive effect on music fans? Well, I think any band that reaches uh, a level of success where you do start to fill out stadiums and stuff, you're always going to get the naysayers and the backlash. I mean, that's the way life is. You um, two, when they started, certainly in, in the UK, where the press was, the music press was notoriously um, cynical. So they kind of build you up so they can shoot you down. And in the early days, the band that kind of released one of the greatest debut albums ever, according to the same press that gave them scathing reviews when The Unforgettable Fire came out, because it wasn't kind of fashionable to, to kind of support a band that was uh, loved by, you know, too many people then, I think. And as far as the beast. and as far as U uh, two is concerned, I remember in the the mid nineties they started to adopt a, a more electronic sound, and and people. I was actually a huge fan of that. I wrote, Disco Tech is one of my favorite songs by U two, but I know a lot of their their sort of hardcore fans kind of turned against them for trying to do something different. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, that happens again because um, the Unforgettable Fire was a radical change. I mean, the, the guy who ran the record label. Chris Blackwell. Um, I mean, you got to remember, you two were kind of a standard rock band, for want of a better word. They they kind of drums, uh, drums, bass, guitar, vocals, and then they made an album with Brian Eno, who, apart from working with David Bowie around his low period and stuff, was known for making ambient records like music for airports and things. 
And Chris Blackwell's Island Records Supremo was the first to think it was a really bad idea. And of course, that album was the thing that started to propel him into the stratosphere. And they worked with him through the, um, the Joshua Tree, obviously, which was the peak of their career. But what they did then was what bands should do, really, which is reinvent themselves. They kind of, as Bono said, after they did the, the last day, New Year's Eve on the Rattle and Hum Tour, which, which followed the, um, the Joshua Tree. So it's been a fantastic journey. We need to go away and dream it up all over again. So I'm a great believer that bands, even if they need to do it for themselves artistically and creatively, they, they need to push out and do something different. You can't churn out the same album over and over again at different levels of, of, of greatness, you know, because there will be highs and lows. And um, I, I think that the experiments they made, they did also come back, Bono did say that um, uh, we got to realise that we're a rock band, so we kind of we went back to that, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you wash your dirty laundry in public, don't you? Tony Michael Edis joins us now. We're talking about you too and his new book, Insights from the Engine Room. And you've had experience with all sorts of different bands, but you too has been obviously in the headlines the last few weeks since they uh, launched their 30th anniversary of the Joshua Tree Tour, a tour that I saw back in 1987, one of the last arena shows they did for just about a decade in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I mean, uh, live at Red Rocks in Colorado, did that mark a, an exclamation mark in terms of U2 and, and their evolution as a live band versus being a, a band that was cranking out some incredible studio albums, Michael? Or Tony? Yeah, that, that, yeah, that that was uh, that was a pivotal moment in the band's career. I mean, I was kind of very actively involved in that because we'd um, got a lot of support from the TV station in Newcastle, in the law in, in the north of England, and a few things that kind of really set the pace for that was the manager Paul McGuinness, who up until the last two or three years has managed YouTube for thirty-five years, but um, before they even got a record contract, they arranged a deal with the, with the TV station there that they would fly the producer and, and various cameramen and people out to film them at Red Rocks under the condition that um, that they would own the film. They would give them first rights to show it locally so they could use one song, they could use the whole song or whatever. Um, but what what really happened that was, was amazing was that the guy that ran Showtime in the US was a massive U2 fan, so they got a, like a network screening through a film that they made themselves. Um, but the, uh, the interesting thing about that was it was one of the, it, it's arguably one of the finest rock films ever, but it nearly didn't happen because the weather on the day was nothing short of horrendous. And it was a real, um, real hazard um, that, that the show couldn't go on. And it wasn't until literally the 11th hour that they made the decision to do it. And Dennis Sheehan, who's been their tour manager, who sadly passed away last year, um, had worked with a band called Stone the Crows um, a few years prior to his involvement with U2, where the lead guitarist, a guy called Les Harvey, got electrocuted and died on stage. So having to make that decision was um, was literally life or death. But then what happened was they kind of, it became such a, a surreal piece of film with the way that, that, you, that you can't dictate the weather no matter what filters you put on your cameras. And they had an ex-Vietnam uh, pilot flying upside down in a helicopter over the over Red Rocks, taking these incredible images. And it really was a spectacular concept. The other thing that happened was um, the president from 
managing director of the record company, Ireland at the time, decided to release Un- Under a Blood Red Sky as basically the price of a single. It was £2.99 in the UK. And it became a number one album, but it wasn't that much dearer than a single. It was just a live record at an affordable price. So that gave the perception that they were a big band. And then after that, the previous three albums charted. So it was a great marketing ploy, but it was also a great... Um, the thing is, if that concert hadn't have happened at Red Rocks, that would have been the end of the band because they'd spent every single penny they had on making that production. I think so. The, I respect them for taking chances like that. I think the same could be said for Kiss when they pres, uh, produced, uh, self-produced their first live album. It was kind of a make it or break it opportunity for them. I think what a lot of people want to know is about Bono and his personality can be divisive, and 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 a lot of people call him preachy and the idea that they they spend money to go to a concert and he takes time to share his political views is was that. Bono from the get-go, or did that just evolve as as U2's popularity increased? Well, I think he's always been like that lippy Irishman, you know, kind of the gift of the Blarney Stone, where they can kind of talk forever. He does have, like, a world stage, and, you know, that can be seen um, to be abusive use of that podium, so to speak, by some people. Obviously, he's not going to... There, there are going to be Trump fans who go to U2 concerts. There's, there's no danger of that not happening. So... For him to kind of um, start to attack a crowd that have paid a lot of money to come and see him is probably not a good idea. But I actually went to see them last week, which I believe they played in Tampa on my birthday, which is very nice of them. The show was spectacular. I know you guys got them in Toronto, which is um, a little more than down the road from Winnipeg. But nevertheless, they're playing Canada, and the show is is quite spectacular. Um, and being the boring old man that I am now, I left during the encores to get away from the, the, the ridiculous traffic that would have been taking me forever to get back to St. Petersburg. Um, and I heard a little bit of, of some preaching going on stage, but we were kind of, uh, uh, nothing really happened in that concert. They just went on stage and basically played. Um, it was raining right up until the moment they came on and a rainbow came out and then we got away with watching them without any rain. But he didn't do what I expected him to do. And yes, it will upset a lot of people. And personally, I don't want to hear it. Um, a lot of people do go, so they don't want in between. If you added it up throughout a concert, you would probably get another three songs over the years. And he's done those things where he's phoned George Bush up live from a stage and stuff and things. Um, he's 57 now. Is he going to stop? Probably not. <laughs> Here's one. Does Bono ever take off his sunglasses? I can't remember the last time I ever saw him without sunglasses. Well, there's a reason for that. His light, his eyes are very sensitive to light. Now, I don't know if that's happened as a result of wearing sunglasses throughout the years. And obviously he wears them all the time. And you never see a photograph of him without them on now. Even when he does interviews, he has like, you know, um, the ones that kind of, what they call them, I've got them myself, I can't remember. Um Bipolar, whatever, not bipolar, but, you know, when they go become sunglasses. The transition, the transition lenses. Transition, all that, so yeah, bipolar's not right at all. (laughs) No. Um, So, yeah, um, he does have, um, he's very, very sensitive to it. And I only just read that, believe it or not, over the last couple of months. But he's not likely to to take them off. Otherwise, he kind of might squint a bit and look weird. 
Tony, before we let you go, what's the key to keeping your cool around uh, David Bowie, who's obviously now passed, but the biggest names in rock and roll? What, what's the key to being accepted by these individuals? Is, is, it, is it being yourself? Is it, is it limiting your, your awestruckness? How do you build a rapport with, with individuals who, who have really no reason to be interested in you whatsoever? Well, it's funny that. It, it's it's a really good question, actually, because I think it's a kind of... My book was about lessons learned from rock and roll. And, you know, kind of when the roller coaster stops, i.e. The, the ridiculous pace that you work through all those periods, you don't kind of have to sit time to sit back and reflect over it. But I think, speaking personally, um, I humanised it. I treated all these guys just the same. And what people don't realise is they see these people, like, for instance... I've seen you, pl- you two play to like 11 people in, um, you know, in a pub in Manchester, and three of those people came with me. They'd been around at my house, they'd had barbecues, you know, my, they'd played with my kids, they'd listened to my record collection, I've turned them on to music because I'm a little bit older than they are. And then you see them appear with Dylan and people over the years. Um, so you kind of share that kind of one thing where I'm learning my trade as they're learning theirs. But I think integrity, respect, trust, because a lot of musicians kind of are insecure. And sometimes they just need an arm over their shoulder when, I mean, take a huge band. Sometimes kind of, they might look like they're being obnoxious and stroppy and certain things. They might, their wife might have just had a baby and they're on tour for the next three months and they'd rather just be at home watching a movie and having a pizza. So you have to kind of, I wrote in my book that to understand um, rock stars, you have to think like them, you have to get inside your head. But like I also said, don't stay there too long. But you really, they're, they're all different. They're creative people. And I have a great admiration for, if you go back to the 60s, I mean, could you imagine how Brian Epstein managed the Beatles and especially John Lennon? Because they barely lasted a year after he died. And that must have been an incredibly difficult task for a band that were that huge around that time. Um, I, I, people like Bowie uh, have such graciousness and humility and sense of humour. Um, that they're more than a visionary and an iconic rock star. Um, and I was fortunate enough, because my story with Bowie and people is working with people whose records I'd bought as a kid, and that doesn't really happen to a kid from the north of England, you know. So I was forever grateful that every day when I went to work, I, I was loving what I did. It was like um, the job that I never expected, that I'd never let go. So that, that's the key ingredient for me. I never treat them like rock stars. This has been uh, very insightful. We've enjoyed your, our visit with you, Tony. Maybe we can do this again sometime. What's the new book? Is it Let the Good Times Roll? Let the Good Times Roll, yeah. I mean, it is It is what it says on the packet. It's it's me. Kind of, the funny thing with the book is, is <laughs> with my previous book, it's like eight or nine years old. And I wrote it in three months because I had nothing else, nothing else to do. And a lot of people were saying, write a book, write a book. So I kind of wrote a book to shut everybody up. Um, but the thing is, I don't sing and I don't play but I kind of think like an artist. Mm-hmm. So I, people buy my, I sell more copies of my book now than when it came out. And when people buy it, I say, I, I feel like I'm about to release Dark Side of the Moon and somebody's bought my first record. It's like, oh, I don't want that. I can do so much better than that now. So I've revisited the old book. And I, I mean, obviously, with, on a serious note, with people like Bowie passing last year, it was a complete wake-up call because I'm about to start a podcast and stuff. And it is trying in my own little way to keep the legacy alive of these people by just being noisy and opinionated and talkative about them. Um, Because the likes of the people we lost last year 
the Princes, the Bowies, the George Michaels, the Leonard Cohens, the Glenn Fuss, they won't ever exist again. Well, we'll have to dig deeper into those individuals next time we meet. Tony, thanks again. My pleasure, guys. Good to meet you. Thank you very much for your time. Tony Michaelidis joining us now. You spell Michaelidis, Michael, as you might expect, expect I-D-E-S. TonyMichaelidis.com is the website. And the name of the book, once again, is Inside the Engine Room. Insights from the Engine Room. Pardon me. I was thinking of you 2 on the inside, which is sort of the headline for the email that was sent to us to tell us about insights from the engine room. We're going to have a quick look at your forecast up next. I think I should ask Tony to go off the speakerphone. Yeah, that's probably something we should have done. But you know what? It's it's always sort of awkward to do it mid-interview. Uh, whatever. He was the good thing with, with him is he was delightful enough to tolerate the speakerphone. Absolutely. So, uh, Tony Michaelidis, thank you for your time and some insight into Bono. Like I say, he's a little bit of a polarizing figure, and it was nice to hear Tony say, yeah, I don't really like the preachy stuff either. <laughs> I'd rather him give me three more songs in the concert. And so, uh, honesty. And uh, so picking up his book might not be a bad idea. If you like insight into rock and roll, if you have somebody in your life that has a desire to learn a little bit more, uh, he has two books. The first one, Insights from the Engine Room, and then now his new book is called The Let the Good Times Roll. Tony Michaelidis joining us from Florida this afternoon on Mackling and McGarry. With just uh, 30 seconds left here, how did it go last week with the Nickelback tickets? Where Did you deal with a lot of smarmy people? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then lots of people, I mean, the phone lines lit up, right? Okay. People wanted their tickets. We had text messages from people who said, I love Nickelback. I really want these tickets. We even had an email from an individual whose granddaughters had met Chad Kruger at his home in Abbotsford. Uh, kind of a neat story. So, yeah, they are polarizing, not to use the same word twice about two different bands and two individuals. But uh, there's no question that Nickelback uh, creates that polarizing sense when you talk about them and play their music. We would play the music bad. Turn off the music already! Is that <laughs> enough? Ah, I, I, Nickelback, I think, is one of the great Canadian success stories, and uh, good for them. It is coming up to Global News at 3 o'clock on 680 CJOB. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling, 680 CJOB. I come to work Saturday morning, Greg, and walking around the building and I'm wearing a Winnipeg Thunder ball cap, a new era cap, 950 snapback, it's brand new. And I bump into Bubba, our promotions guy, and he he's a guy, he's what, he's 30s, right? Absolutely. So he's a grown man, but he instantly melted and became a kid again. He kind of looks up at me, he goes, whoa, where'd you get that? I said, I got it at Okanora, man. It's at the Forks, it's the Johnston Terminal, and... The owner and founder of Okanora joins us right now. Was it J.J. Eubanks that J used to hit the three-pointers? <laughs> From way downtown, J.J. Eubanks. So, <laughs> we need to track him down and have him on the show. Uh, or Joey Vickery. Joey Vickery. That's... University of Manitoba buys an alum. That's right. Yes, yeah. sir. Went and played in Europe for a lot of years. Joey was a, a great basketball player. Chris, how did things go this weekend? The launch. But I know my brother and at least three other people, including McGarry, <laughs> on my Facebook uh, friends list, had Thunder stuff underneath the de uh, Father's Day tree, so to speak. 
That's awesome. Yeah, no, things uh, things went really well, uh, better than expected, but I think that's sort of what you get with uh, Winnipeg are supporting local and supporting their uh, local sports team. So, so just re- refresh our memory here. How many hats did you have made? Uh, in the end, we had 48 hats made, and then we had around uh, somewhere between 60 and 70 T-shirts. I know there's a couple people who snuck a few early, so I can't remember the exact amount when we released on Saturday, but it was somewhere in that range. So, And how many did you sell on Saturday? Uh, we were still out of just about everything by 11 o'clock with the exception of a couple of t-shirts and then our online stock we sold out in the first two minutes. So, um, oh my yeah, God. definitely That's one nuts. of our more popular releases to date for sure. You're like, uh, the Winnipeg Jets selling season tickets back in uh, June of 2011. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, it- if only everything was that easy, but fantastic! Congratulations, so, yeah. Chris. You know, I, yeah. I did see a post on Instagram at Okinawa Store, I believe, uh, that there is a chance to get in on the hats yet. If uh, you missed out, is there? Is that still a thing? Yeah, after all the demand the CGOB interview created last week, uh, <laughs> we put in place a, a little pre-sale. We were able to convince them to let us run a few additional hats. So we have a pre-sale, a seventy-two hour pre-sale that ends on uh, Tuesday at lunchtime. So. If people are hoping to get the hat, they can still uh, grab it. It is seven to nine weeks for delivery, so uh, somewhere middle to end of August. But uh, if anyone's looking for a great Christmas present or something, you can be uh, well prepared, I guess. And that's at Okinawa.com? You bet. Now, the physical store is in the Johnston Terminal. Maybe give people directions because Brett sent me a picture. You have this great, it's like a blueprint or a seating chart from the old Winnipeg Arena. What is that? And uh, can you please put my name on one? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we did that at, uh, uh, last year to sort of coincide with uh, Heritage Classic. We're big sports fans like most Winnipeggers. And uh, we were just, uh, I actually did it because I wanted it for the house. And my wife, we did it for a t-shirt. My wife said, oh, we should turn that into a print. So we put out the print at Christmas. And I, I think we have like one or two left in store. But uh, definitely a, a popular piece uh, for sure. So. Chris, the, the, one of the big follow-up questions I was getting from everybody on Saturday, I had at least four people say it to me over the weekend, so I'm sure you've probably heard it a hundred times, is, that, are they going to do the Winnipeg Fury next? You know what, there's been a few, uh, there's been some uh, teams that come up that I've never even heard of from people, so uh, I definitely have my research ahead of me, but they're, uh, you know what, there might just have to be something in the pipeline that uh, pays homage to uh, another one of Winnipeg's great teams. So, oh, the Winnipeg um, Fury. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know what? I can't. I think I made it to maybe one or two games. They played off Waverly. Is that where they played? And before that, they played at the University of Manitoba at the old uh, okay. Pan Am or University Stadium, as they call it. And I know they played one playoff game at Winnipeg okay. Stadium at the old Canad Inn Stadium, and they must have had 11,000 people there. I think that's the year they won the championship in Vancouver. Crazy. I couldn't tell you what year that was, uh, but yeah, I've been to my share of Winnipeg Fury games, as uh, Mr. McMahon used to call them. That's amazing. Well, now, here you talk about paying homage to old Winnipeg teams, and it also seems to be just a part of the culture at Okinawa. Correct me if I'm wrong, but did I see a sweater on a shelf that... that sort of bore the logo of the old Grand Beach Club? Oh, yeah. We definitely had... Uh, we put that out last summer, I guess. It was, uh, yeah, homage to the, the Grand Beach Club and the bright fluorescent colors of that and sort of uh, paying tribute to the, the Chip and Pepper uh, Foster Brothers who came through here and made their mark on clothing and beach culture. So, uh, yeah, we definitely try to... to uh, dig into the Winnipeg archives, I guess, and incorporate what we can into some of our pieces. 
Well, Chris, listen, thanks for uh, the update, and uh, thanks for letting me get down there to, to get my hands on a hat and shirt. I'm wearing the shirt right now with pride, and uh, every person who has seen the hat has just been completely dumbfounded that uh, it's, a, it's something brand new. I showed my dad yesterday, and he said, where the hell did you get that? It looks brand new. So, well, I, I appreciate the support, and I appreciate the uh, opportunity to come on here a second time. All right. Um, I think I, I heard rumor that John Lowen actually has the, the old Kaboom mascot costume, so we should track that down and get you in that for a day or something. <laughs> that would be tremendous. <laughs> Thanks, I would Chris. Love that. Uh, we're going to bug you about that. Okay. Thanks, okay, partner. Chris. Thanks a lot. Keep take, in touch. Take care, guys. Chris Watchorn, you too. Chris Watchorn is the owner and founder of Oak and Ore. You can find them at the Johnston Terminal. They're sort of, um, they're close to if you're if you're coming in. So you're you're coming in. I guess you're heading south into the complex. They're closer to the north side. Like if you go in that first door, like the Manitoba, like the Travel Manitoba area at yeah. the north end. There, there's the coffee shop. If to the right is Spaghetti Factory. If you're coming from the main area of the forks versus the back door, right? Yeah, so if you, because what happens is I went sort of to the, not the back door, but uh, if you walk in, like it's the, the the entrance that's beside where I guess they put the the rink in the winter. Right. So then when I went into that door, I had to end up going left down the corridor. So Fantastic. it would have been easier had I come in from the, the Manitoba door. It's not, it's in there, it's not hard to find. but Just, just ask around. Yeah, I probably made it more confusing than uh, needed to be. Yeah, it, I would think, based on what you're saying, it's kind of in that northwest corner of the Johnston Terminal. And it's on the main on floor. Perfect. Well, that's that's a start. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of that Kaboom costume, I got to tell you a story when we come back. Oh, boy. About another mascot costume. It was the best birthday present I think I've ever gotten from a buddy. It was incredible. I'll share it with you when we come back. Looking forward to hearing that story. We will hear it after we have a look at traffic and weather. Up next. We were trying to remember where Atlantis water slides were. Atlantis! I'd- I don't, Atlantis, it's in the Bahamas at that really awesome <laughs> hotel. Why haven't you been there? I sort of only remember the name. Maybe I didn't live here when they were here, but we had several people point out to us exactly where the water slides were. And it sounds like you were bang on in terms of the dueling water slides and that you could race your compatriots down the, uh, down the water slide, Brett. Rod says, I believe Atlantis water slide was just south of Bishop on Pemina. I remember racing a buddy down the slide and smacking the top of my head on the tube as I jumped in. Four stitches later, my evening was over. Still had a great time. Did you win the race, Rod? Did oh, you win the race? Hope so. And yeah, and we had a, a Rob sent me an email, Brett at CJOB.com, saying, Is that the indoor one at Pemina and Chancellor? So there we go. Yeah, I only went uh, a couple of times for, I think it was part of a school trip or something. So and I remember it, I guess because it was on Pemina, it was far away from where I lived and I didn't really know where it was. I was unfamiliar with the area. So it was just this neat, this magical place that had water slides inside. <laughs> uh, we got to get on that train, by the way. Uh, anyway, I don't want to open up that conversation. Uh, Chris Watcher, you know what? We might be accused of uh, unduly promoting his business, uh, Oak and Ore. That, that's not what this is about. We wanted to congratulate Chris for captivating and capturing some real imagination and memories for people. You know, because when the Winnipeg Jets left, 
it wasn't long when you were at a dinner party that people were talking about their memories of the Jets. I challenge you to tell me the last time you had Winnipeg Thunder memories. It's only because cause thousands of people went to these games. They were very well attended. And there's just been no forum, no reason for people to talk about this. And so it's been a genuine walk down memory lane for a lot of people that have had no excuse, no reason to talk about some real special times uh, in sports history here in Winnipeg. So that's why we're paying as much attention to this as we are and for me it it meant the world because i was never and and i remain and i'm not a i'm not a hockey guy and uh i'm sorry i'm sorry i know that makes me kind of an almost unpatriotic no leave the country no apologies required okay but uh, so (laughs) i was i was a basketball nut when i was a teenager so when we got our own professional team it was I was in heaven going to that home opener where 11,000 people were going insane. I remember Kelvin Upshaw, the point guard, coming up (laughs) the left side and tossing an alley-oop from outside the three-point line. Guy coming up the right side, grabs it and dunks it, and the place just went insane. All these hungry basketball fans wanting to to finally cheer for a team live was incredible. Chris mentioned Kaboom, the mascot, and that maybe John Levin has the as the costume somewhere, uh, Kaboom still plies his trade with a Winnipegger that played Kaboom is the Toronto Raptor Yep, and has been often voted the best mascot in the National Basketball Association. He's a former Winnipegger. He's been the Raptor since day one, over 20 years. I think it's Ryan Bonney is his name. Yes. And he's a gymnast and outstanding performer. He's been injured seriously several times, but he is a Winnipegger inside that Toronto Raptor suit and I wanted to tell you on my 35th birthday oh boy we're at the bar I think it was called Coyotes just in that same area north of north of Bishop on Pembina Highway it's gone now and we're there we've had a few drinks and I've already been surprised by one of my best friends from the Okanagan just showed up at dinner I had a feeling he might be coming and even though I had a feeling he was coming I was still blown away when he actually walked in the room Mm -hmm. Fast forward a couple hours, we're at the bar, we've had a few beverages, and the band is playing, I don't even remember what song, and Benny, the Jets mascot, shows up on stage. (laughs) And of course, I'm freaking out, right? What are the chances Benny would be here on my birthday? Oh my God, this is incredible. He comes down off the stage, he's high-fiving everybody and gives me a great big hug or whatever. Uh, how could this possibly happen? <laughs> Benny takes off his head, and it's my one, another one of my best friends, Kevin McDonald. He had made arrangements to get his wow. hands on this costume, and that was his birthday present to me. And it, to this day, uh, you know what? My kids and, and Jackie can buy me all sorts of great gifts, but from a buddy, that's one of the best gifts I've ever received, birthday, Christmas, otherwise. So I want an excuse to tell that story. Oh, it's a great story. What a great story and a great memory. So we want to thank Chris Watcher and again for bringing us back down memory lane talking about the Winnipeg Thunder and now Benny from the Winnipeg Jets. It is coming up to 323 which means a quick look at the forecast and then sports. 338 Monday afternoon. Greg and Brett with you till 4 o'clock. We do have some tickets to give away. Won't tell you for what. Well, we'll tell you in a few minutes. Uh, Thanks for the text messages uh, going down memory lane, a little bit of nostalgia, talking about uh, the Winnipeg Thunder, and that turned into a story about Benny from yours truly. And somebody mentioned, what about the Winnipeg Whips? We talked about the Winnipeg Fury soccer team, the Gold Eyes, of course, part of the 
the, the, the landscape for 25 years already now, or 23, 94 or 93 they came back, 23, 24 years. I digress. But there was a major league or a minor league baseball team associated with the Montreal Expos, the Winnipeg Whips, some people may remember. There was an annoying sort of grandstand in the southwest corner of Winnipeg Stadium. It eventually was torn down and replaced by Blue Bomber offices in the Blue and Gold Room. They had weddings and socials and stuff there. But there was actually a baseball grandstand there. And the Winnipeg Whips played there for a part of 1970 and all of 1971 when the Expos moved their farm team, their AAA team here. And when Faith Hill and Tug, Tug McGraw, Tug McGraw, played for the Philadelphia Phillies. His uh, son is Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, Tim McGraw. Well, they went strolling and they went outside Shaw Park, found the baseballs under the assumption that that baseball park was there when Tug McGraw pitched as part of the American League, the AAA League back in the day. We don't need to tell them any different. But the bottom line is uh, someone mentioned the Winnipeg Whips, and I wanted to acknowledge that because I never went to a Whips game. They were gone by 1971, but a lot of people have some fond memories, and including Steve Carlton and I think Steve Rogers, who are some big names from Major League Baseball in the 70s and early 80s, actually played one another at Winnipeg Stadium once Steve upon Rogers? A time. Captain America played baseball Steve for the Winnipeg Rogers. Whips? Yeah, not Captain America. He okay. was an actual pitcher for the Montreal Expos. One of their best ever, actually. You say that the grandstand was annoying, the one that they, they yeah, tore down and replaced? It was awkward. Like, they didn't build it far enough away from the south east corner of the grandstand, so it was a short porch, and the fence was awkward. They just It's just kind of a typical Winnipeg thing, much similar to the way they built the baseball up in the northwest corner about 25 years later, you know, and they had to build the retractable seats on the east side grandstand of Winnipeg Stadium. It was still too short. It never did anything properly back in the day. It was always so Mickey Mouse. <laughs> All right. That's why I moved away. So Mickey Mouse sometimes around here. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we have stuff to give away. Snake oil gets twisted. So just The Snake Oil Sinners featuring D. Snyder of Twisted Sister, Monday, June 26th at the Burton Cummings Theatre. Described as an authentic theatrical tribute to rock's biggest stars, and for this show, they will be joined by one of them, D. Snyder. The song you're listening to right now, The Kids Are Back. What album is it from, and in what year was it released? 204 780 what album is this song from? The kids are back. And in what year was it released? 204-780-6868. I'm looking at a picture of, is it Baby Boom Baby here? Boom, yes. One of our listeners saying, my sister was with Baby Boom for one season. Yep. Hang on a second here. I'm just pulling up the picture. Uh, oh. No, it was his wife. His wife? My wife was Baby sister. Boom for the Winnipeg Thunder games. That's cool. And I said, really? How many seat, How many games? Because I know someone who was also Baby Boom. Who, who claims, claims, to re- be, claims to be <laughs> Baby Boom. <laughs> That's right. I was giving her the gears uh, over the weekend because uh, she said she has no proof. 
She only has she has photograph of her inside the costume, but no uh-huh. photograph of her inside the costume without the helmet on. So I said, well, what if you say to somebody that you were baby boom, and they either think you're a liar or just a flat out crazy person because you that's kind of an odd thing to say, right? I was baby boom. No, you weren't. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I guess they had. I'm, I'm sure they had more than one person as Baby Boom over the years. And here's one more suggestion, and I've been meaning to say it, and I keep forgetting. Winnipeg Thunder weren't the only pro basketball team. We also had the Winnipeg Cyclone. Who played at the convention center. Yeah. That was a little bit of an awkward setup there. The Wind Tunnel. Is that what they called it? And I'm ashamed to admit this because I just went on earlier about being a big basketball you fan. Never went to one single game. Did never you? went to a Cyclone game. They had a like a 13 game winning streak one year. I think it was 1998, after the World Junior Hockey Championship. So it would have been 99. And so they sold out this game Sunday afternoon. I was all hyped to go, and they got destroyed <laughs> going for their 13th or 14th consecutive win. It was the only game I went to. It was really odd because they had the bleachers on the one side of the room, like the big grand hall at the convention center. Yep. Then they had the floor. And then you know those curtains at, that they use to divide the display spaces during a convention? Yep. That's what they had on the other side of the floor okay. to divide. And then they had really cheesy sort of concessions. It was, yeah, it was kind of like the Gold Eye Stadium at Winnipeg Stadium all over again. Just <laughs> not first rate. No, well, it wasn't a first rate uh, team, I would imagine. Just like the Thunder. I mean, the Thunder, I loved the Thunder, but it wasn't the best level of I basketball. I think it was Daryl Dawkins coached that team. The Cyclone, that's right. Yeah, Chocolate, Chocolate Thunder. Thunder, baby. So the, in a way, the, late the Thunder. Daryl Dawkins, by the way. That's true, yeah. In a way, there was, again, the, there was a, a, thunder, a thunderous connection there to the basketball team as well. It is 344 on 680 CJOB. Well, Jeff Forte is looking for a winner for our contest. We will pause and have a look at traffic as well as weather all coming up next. Winnipeg Cyclone, eh? The Winnipeg Cyclone. Isn't it like a basketball that's going to turn into a tornado? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Interesting. It was the, the logo was interesting because it was kind of shaped similar to the Winnipeg Thunder. It because was of in that, that triangle. inverted triangle kind of situation. Yeah, so that's true. That's I a think good they point. Were trying to maybe take a little bit of inspiration from that, but uh, kind of a neat logo. So I didn't like green though. I'm not a green guy. Green and gold. I think it was green and orange, something like that. You got that green, that bright green undershirt though that you wear with oh, your golf shirt. Oh, that's bright green. That's oh. that's different, man. Okay. That's fluorescent green. I, I dig that green. Fashion I just don't... tips with Macklin yeah, and yeah. McGarry. I remember the whips, ball, bat, and helmet days. Here's a tidbit for you. I was the first bomber mascot to hit the field. Do you know which one I was? Cheers from Chris. That's at 780-6868. I was there when Buzz and Boomer came out of the rider truck. Cal Murphy's Great marketing plans. The rider truck drove into the stadium from the southwest corner and out came Buzz and Boomer. And I'm going to have to say Boomer came out first. Chris, can you confirm that? 204-780-6868. Julie Buckingham is here. Were you uh, ever a mascot in any capacity? No, not officially, no. I Oh, not officially? <laughs> this sounds more interesting than I imagined No, it just might being, be. being of smaller stature, oh, I yeah. often became a mascot of just whatever was going on. You know, somebody would pat you on the head because you were tiny and you became the mascot. <laughs> oh. 
man. Uh, but not officially. Maybe you should have marketed yourself to the University of, uh, like, um, Notre Dame. You could have yeah. been, like, the Fighting the Irish, the, the Leprechaun, might. or whatever yeah. he is. Yeah. Sure. I'm 52% Irish, so says my ancestry DNA. Wow. You did that? Did that. Really? Yes. Any Actually, surprises at all? That. Oh? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Didn't know about the Irish. What I did, mean, What did you think it was? What did I you think just, it would be? I just thought Great Britain, perhaps. Which, yeah. So it's close, but I didn't anticipate. I mean, technically, if you look at it, Irish would be considered the Republic of Ireland, as opposed to, say, Northern Ireland or Great Britain or Scotland. I would have expected Scotland and Great Britain would have led the way and uh, hmm. secondary. Do, do you worry about what they might do with that information? Uh, it's my brothers. It's my brothers. Oh, okay. We we split the split, split the, the cost. cost. Oh, okay. So it's it's my brother's DNA. So I don't care. What have you been working <laughs> on uh, this afternoon? Getting ready. So like, I mean, you guys are so busy throughout the day, mm-hmm. getting ready for the show. What have you got ready for us? It will no doubt be emotional. Around five thirty-seven, Bernice Catchaway will join us. Her daughter Jennifer missing nine years as of today, and they are refocusing their search. They are continuing to search as. As I'm sure any family would, when you have a missing child, you don't stop searching until you have answers. So that family is continuing to look for their daughter and for their loved one. We will catch up with her and and find out where they've refocused. I know they've moved locations many times, and it sounds like they're back in that uh, area of the Dakota Teepee First Nation. So we will speak with them. Uh, on, a, on the lighter side, Little Shop of Horrors is opening at Rainbow Stage. So we'll Ooh. have uh, the artistic director join us as well as... Uh, some others, so, so it's going to be lots of fun. Maybe we'll throw some toast. I don't know what, what could happen. Uh, we've got Kings of Leon's tickets to give away later this week. Curios tickets. And uh, so it's going to be a whole lot of fun. We have to congratulate, by the way, Melissa Cavanaugh is the winner of the Snake Oil Sinners tickets. Uh, Snake Oil gets twisted with D. Snyder from Twisted Sister. That's next Monday, June 26th, Burton Cummings Theatre. So we will have more tickets throughout the week. Julie Buckingham, you thank you very away? much. Oh, is it not okay, time no, for you me go, to run you can away? go. That's fine. Goodbye. You got a, you're busy. You're, you're busy, busy lady. I'm a busy person. Okay, where you go. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Julie Buckingham. We always get get into these rows and these back and forth. We adore and respect very much the work that Richard and Julie do. We give them a hard time just because... Well, it's fun to do so. We like to have fun on this program. <laughs> oh. uh, it, well, I, I try to stay out of it. You you do quite well at uh, carrying that torch for the both of us. Raw. Oh, I was so close with the guess here about the first bomber mascot. Oh, only one out of the truck was Boomer. You're right on the guess. Did a great dance with the Moonwalk Incorporated. Dang hot day. Buzz was out later. So I guess I was sort of right about that. They wow. did not both come out of the truck, but Boomer was first wow. and only. Good for you, Chris yeah. ML. Yeah. Chris, come and <laughs> do a moonwalk for the us. the moonwalk and wearing the costume. <laughs> that is incredible. All right. Hey, we are out of time. So thanks to Jeff Fortier and Master Can we do Control. it again tomorrow? I think we I think we can, yeah. Yeah. That sounds I think like a plan. Brent gave us the, the stamp of approval to come back at least one more day. That's right. We the boss came in just before we began our two thirty five segment and sat for the whole fifteen minutes. So we were kind of nervous the whole time. I think that's why we let that interview go as long as we did, because we didn't want to go to a commercial in case he was waiting to fire us. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm Brad. He's Greg. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. The news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham is up next.